0: Hello everyone, my name is Elaine Lai and I'm a rising fifth year PhD student in religious studies at Stanford focusing on Buddhism. This podcast is part two of Queer Joy and Community Resilience, Voices from Stanford. Part one featured five members of the student group Refuge Queerness, Spirituality and Religion, where we heard from some pretty amazing friends how they have been co-creating joy through this queer multi-faith space. Today, for part two, we'll hear from Vivek Tana, who I first met through Refuge. Shout out to Mata. Vivek recently completed a thesis focusing on queer mania, where he weaves uncertainty as an analytical thread between religious studies, psychology, and sanity. In my opinion, his work is queering the fields of religious studies and opening the space for queer folks who have experienced mania to narrate these experiences in different ways. Outside of academia, Vivek has done some pretty amazing work with Stanford Queer and Asian, LGBTQ Plus Health Training, and he's a smoke and Zumba instructor. Shout out to my dear friends Destiny and Karan, who did all of the editing work. Finally, this podcast is made possible by Critical Consciousness, an anti-oppressive praxis program hosted by the Office of Inclusion, Community and Integrative Learning at Stanford. I hope it can embolden other folks to push the bounds of academia and to queer up your respective disciplinary spaces. Enjoy! So, yeah, without further ado, would you just uh, introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, your major?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me, I'm so excited. Um, yeah, Vivek, Tana here, he, him pronouns. I am a philosophy and religious studies major. I'm a senior graduating in a few weeks, actually. That is me.
0: Congratulations. Thank
1: you. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. <laughs> actually, I can believe it. I can very much believe it.
0: Yes, well deserved. And um, hoping that you'll have some rest between graduation and your next stop. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start I met you Vivek through uh, Refuge and so I just wanted to get a sense of like your movements in different communities around campus and your engagement specifically with queer communities on campus
1: yeah yeah um yeah it's a tricky thing I mean I'm so glad I feel like every I mean I just like look around me and one by one, everyone is either queer or ends up being queer. Um, so I'm very grateful to have so much queer connection in my life. But queer community is a really tricky thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to have found queerness in a few different places at Stanford. Stanford Queer and Questioning Asians and Pacific Islanders is one of them. That's been a really fun group and um, some queer work through the Stanford Daily Um, There was a team of queer folks working at the free clinics on a few different initiatives. So queerness has just kind of emerged in a few different ways for me and I'm really glad I've Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to explore.
0: Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about Stanford queer and Asian and why um, it might be important to have a space specifically for queer and Asian and as opposed to just a queer group. Um, what are the needs that you've noticed about the community that is specifically queer and Asian, Asian Pacific Islander?
1: Yeah, I think in, you know, generic queer spaces, I think whiteness is a really dominating force in queer community and discourse about queer issues. And even you can see that in like media representation as well. So I think it's really important to have folks of different backgrounds to have like particular spaces where they can connect to people i feel like there's just an opportunity to like be seen and understood in a different way i mean our space itself is pretty casual we would have hangouts and like brunches and that kind of thing but i find that people can like really hit it off and actually build new kinds of friendships um but i'm but i think it's just so important to to just exist as a group and to show and to like represent even and to kind of network with other queer organizations and among other like Asian and Asian American organizations as well to show like, Hey, yeah, we're here. We've been here.
0: Do you have any memory maybe of your participation in any of these communities, Stanford queer and Asian, or maybe the work you did with the clinics that, um, you go back to and that brings you a smile and that kind of encapsulates the personality of a particular community.
1: Yeah. One positive memory is actually our first banquet um, back in person in fall. Because I mean, it's our end of quarter. It's our tradition to have a in-person banquet at the end of each quarter. And we did a few virtual banquets during the pandemic. But when things were finally back in person this quarter, our first in-person banquet was so easy. It was so easy because all I had to do is reserve a space, cater food, people come and just, oh my gosh, there's so much like laughter and there's just so much joy. People were turning looks (laughs) as queer people do. Yeah. People were looking pretty, pretty spiffy, were having so much fun. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what this is all about. Like, this is actually what, what, what it is. um, What queer community is like people coming together and finding joy and sometimes talking like critically about important issues, but also just like existing and having fun. Mm -hmm.
0: I would love to shift a little bit because one of the major reasons I wanted to interview you is because I think you're also queering academia. And as we move into the direction of that conversation, maybe we should talk about the four-part ethnography on Grinder first, and what inspired that and your relationship with ethnography and ethnography and religious studies. And I think, yeah, what inspired you, how you approached it?
1: Sure, the ethnography of Grinder has been quite a trip and a life-changing experience um, for me. So I was just sitting on so many different things And pandemic isolation, not really knowing how things fit together. And the ethnography of Grindr part one, it came out of nowhere for me. It actually hit me by surprise, but I just had this really strong feeling about it. Um, And this is now May in 2021. So I submitted it. Um, It goes up June 1st. It's my big pride moment for the Stanford Daily And it gets way more response than I expected. Like people are reaching out to me, even like my lab mentors, my religious studies TAs, um, even like Professor Gentry was like, oh my gosh, I really liked your ethnography of Grindr. Um, So I think Grindr is just like, I think it encapsulates so many of the problems with queer people and how queer.
0: Tell us more about those problems. Oh my
1: gosh. (laughs) I mean, it's commodifying intimacy. It's reducing people to like, I mean, if you open Grinder for one, it's like a sea of blank profiles and faceless torsos. Um, so it's pretty dehumanizing. It's also dehumanizing in the way that people interact and treat each other. Mm. I mean, I get quite often like send aspic and then you like get blocked if you don't. <laughs> so it's like people really treat each other as disposable. Mm. And I think it's because maybe the, the anonymity as well which I think is a really much deeper issue of like, the fear of seeing each other, which I think ties to a fear of being seen because mm-hmm. people aren't open to being seen when they can't really see themselves yeah. and how they're seeing themselves fit into community in this larger mess of queerness. So the way I defined ethnography was precisely that way of seeing myself. Um, so I use Grinder as a touch point between like myself and queer community, kind of like putting my experience in context And also seeing myself from the outside Mm -hmm. um and it's ironic because i actually wrote like the whole purpose of the project was to save my sanity Mm -hmm. especially i was like all this this messiness going on all these things i was thinking through um pandemic i was like i need to make some kind of coherence out of it and to know that i'm not losing my mind (laughs) so the ethnography of grinder became a way to sort of process
0: yeah so there were four different parts to this ethnography and I, before I go on to the the fourth part, I'm interested as a queer person, we all partake in multiple different communities. But what are some of the problems specific to queer male communities as seen through Grinder, as your experiences at Stanford have shown you?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, again, it's also a tricky thing to talk about because like male privilege still exists in queer community in general. Um, male identifying or mask people often take the center stage. But even I still think at the same time that we have to talk about how queer men interact and like the need for queer male connection. So, I mean, the problems are deep (laughs) and they are rampant and they are horrible. Um, It's like this weird, this cold, distant kind of trauma responsive way of interacting. And I'm starting to understand that maybe some of it is localized to Stanford because of like, I don't know, the kind of personality plus like the size of the queer community here is not really big enough to to where you can get lost so people can know but pretend they don't know each other. It's like everyone sees each other but no one's really talking to each other. (laughs) Um, And my friend described it as like, we're learning how to be children but with adult consequences. Mm. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's all a temporary phase in life. And also um, sometimes I think like bursting the bubble of Stanford can really help that as well. And I've seen like people take different ways to cope and find their own connection, different kinds of community. Uh, th-
0: this is something that I don't know a lot about, but I, I wonder specifically the challenges for male identifying folks or male appearing folks who are queer.
1: I guess to be more specific, internalized homophobia is real. Um, and you can see like, this. there's like this multi-directional totem pole of like status, um, Because from what I've seen, the way queer men organize is very much like kind of status based because the culture is so sexualized. Mm. So like whiteness kind of floats to the top of the totem pole or to the pool, as well as like very masculine presenting people. Mm. So there's anti-femme sentiment, which is really like misogyny and internalized homophobia and transphobia. Mm. Um, And there's also like body shaming. I mean, especially in Grinder, where you're kind of assessed from not your beautiful personality, but like <laughs> your, your abs or whatever. Um, so there's definitely, and that's something that I think weighed on me, especially when I was younger, even before I had the vocabulary to name it.
0: So maybe we can move on a little bit to the fourth part of your ethnography and then um, into your thesis as well because it sounds like a lot of the critical contemplative work you do is actually in the form of writing um, so uh, I would love if you could briefly share with everyone um, the, the kind of coming out story that you shared on the Stanford Daily and the writing process that was involved in that um, and then how you have been thinking about these experiences since then? Have they influenced your academic work since then?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I talked about part one um, and how much um, response it got. Well, I was like, well, I had to figure out how to follow up. Um, so I really worked. I mean, parts two and three took a lot more labor. Um, they were less spontaneous for me. They were a little bit more arduous, but I got them out. I was still proud. I mean, they're still up there. Um, so all of this was happening through last summer. And it was a side project to my... Um, it was originally my thesis, which is an ethnography of cancer care. So this was like an, a side thing where I was kind of thinking through and practicing the same methods, but an autoethnographic project that was a little bit more public-facing. Um, so that was what was happening for context last summer. Then, I, But I was really struggling with how to finish the series. I knew part four would be the last part. I didn't know how I was going to wrap up. So I submitted few failed parts of part 4 so i almost left the project behind um but then early august i have an idea for how to finish um so i pull an all nighter working on it um all is well sleep like 3 hours but then the next few days i stop feeling the need to f- to sleep for more than 3 hours a night in fact when i try sleeping i wake up shaking after 3 hours until i go until i drink coffee and go back to writing I stop feeling the need to eat, my allergies disappear, I stop taking my allergy medication. Um, it's funny, when I try opening up Grindr, I like stare at my phone, I can't even process what I'm seeing, I have no idea what's happening. Um, so I spend all my waking hours writing this Ethnography of Grinder, part four. By the end of the week, I submit a 7,000 word article entitled, all caps, everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> to the daily which was entirely unusable and ironic <laughs> um so the I, I i know something's off so now it is friday the 13th um so i in last august so i message a friend like i'm feeling a little dissociated don't know what's happening so she responds oh sometimes it happens because of depression so i didn't think i was depressed i hadn't felt depressed um but i have no idea what's happening. And I'm like, maybe I feel like my ego has disappeared or something. And like, maybe it comes back and I'm going to be hit with a crippling depression. I have no idea. So I get scared and I call 911, chat with the operator for a bit. She asks me questions about myself, which I answer accurately. And then she asks me, are you alone? 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 So again, I, I feel like my ego is gone. I'm a blank slate. I'm just projecting fear back at people is what it feels like. So I take that question to mean I should not be left unattended. So what I do is I um, step out of my room. I'm living actually on campus in the EVGR apartments, and I'm alone in my room. Um, So I step out. I slide my ID under the door, which is how I get in. So effectively, I've locked myself out. And that also symbolizes leaving my ego behind for what's about to come. the, uh, the operator asked me what gender I am. And I say, I'm veering he, she, <laughs> as I'm stepping into the hall. So I, I, I told the operator that I was locked out and she's like, wait, you did what? <laughs> so at this point, um, she decides I don't need to be rushed to the hospital, which is what, what I was expecting to happen. Um, so instead she sends a few cops who I meet outside peacefully. Um, I hang up the call, I'm chatting with the cops for a bit around the same time. I get a call a facetime call from my parents they call me actually Um, i pick up chatting with them exchanging pleasantries in front of the cops for a bit get increasingly frustrated and then i yell at my parents in front of cops outside the dorm i'm staffing on friday the 13th last august i'm gay (laughs) tell them everything i need to um uh and then happy to answer any questions i think i said enough By I hang up um, and I feel like a vibration like literally a buzz for what feels like a few seconds and then a release and then I know everything is going to be okay. (laughs) So yeah by this point I'm fully manic. Um, For the next few days I kind of come back from that um, manic state. My dad comes to campus and like nurses me back to health basically. Um, Yeah and that's the story of how I came out to my parents and it all and then I ended up writing about it for the daily which is still out there where I talk about what happened.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing with me. I mean, I'm curious in terms of this manic episode that you described, what your experience was in the aftermath, um, dealing with doctors, how they understood your experience, how you understood your own experience. So what ways you might've narrated your experience differently than doctors that you saw
1: yeah yeah so i had um really a community of doctors i've seen i saw many providers um so the thing is i had actually called caps myself a few weeks before the episode um, which is a counseling and psychological services at stanford um And it's funny because, I mean, that's really the whole theme of the article is particular versus universal and negotiating that. So it's like, if I have to go to therapy, everyone has to go to therapy. (laughs) But in the aftermath, I was like, I was very confident in myself because, first of all, nothing bad happened. I didn't do anything that I like regretted or like hurt anyone or myself. But I felt like in in several healthcare settings, I was regarded with a fear. And I think that is a driving force. Um, I think in a healthcare setting... Fear really means like liability, like the liability of letting someone go like untreated or not feeling like you did your part or trying to medicalize really um, what had happened. I mean, I felt like a resistance to being medicalized in some ways. Um, So all of that kind of gave me more fear of myself really. And my parents of course, were like very much freaking out in the background. Um, So it was the irony here is like working on kind of multiple levels. Um, for one, the original purpose of the ethnography of Grinder was to save my sanity and it drove me insane. And th- the irony of being in a manic state of like having to really take care of the people who are charged with protecting me mm-hmm. or taking care of me. Um, so I felt that I was kind of exposing that kind of the insanity of the system itself <laughs> through my insanity. Um, but then I saw one gay psychiatrist and he regarded me entirely without fear, actually. Um, and again, it's irony because I was at this point resisting more medical care, but my parents found the psychiatrist and really wanted me to go. So I really went to give them peace of mind and it ended up helping me a lot. And after one appointment with him, I decided to reopen my manic writings because I actually I had actually almost deleted them um, because I was, again, because of the fear of myself. Um, and after my, my second appointment with him, he was actually particularly interested in like the religious and spiritual nature of what I'd experienced and in fact told me that what I'd experienced was a touch of God. So yeah, I mean, this kind of manic episode that for me was like functional, it allowed me to do what I needed to do. I think it really threw a wrench into like the conventions of psychiatry of like trying to medicalize and problematize every single symptom, which is a common critique of the DSM, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is for one, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on its revision process, and to like pathologizing some things that might not be necessarily like so severe or necessarily a problem, um, and of course, like the genealogy of the DSM is a little bit problematic. Like, homosexual was actually classified as a psychopathology until nineteen seventy three, um, and like gender dysphoria is still in the DSM again with the intent of providing a vocabulary for people who need care and support. But it still has a, the underlying premise is like pathologizing deviation from a norm, which in my like that is itself sanity. That kind of policing of sanity is to me insanity.
0: Yeah. Um, what you're saying about the DSM is, I think, right on the, our entire kind of medical system, the naming mm-hmm. of certain diseases, um, what gets categorized as illness itself is continually creating norms and deviations from those norms and then from my limited understanding i think many times the deviations are pathologies they're related to sexuality Mm -hmm. um they're related to like any kind of gender expression that isn't hetero male normative etc so Uh, A lot gets marked as aberrant there, and I think that uh, hearing your story, the fear that you experienced for your own manic episode, it seems like that's another residue of that system of classification telling you that somehow what happened to you was an aberration, whereas this other doctor, who seemed to be more sympathetic, called it touching God, or having an experience of God. And with that, I was wondering now in your own work, and also if you could talk a little bit about your own religious background, spiritual background, and how this has influenced your ethnography process in your thesis writing.
1: Yeah. So after that, um, so I mean, writing sort of launched me into mania. This manic article, which is unintelligible, because what I was writing became like layered with like double or triple, or even more like meanings. So I basically lost my ability to like negotiate audience. Um, So writing after the fact, I was in this kind of brain fog. And it's funny, my parents were like, stop writing. (laughs) Cause that's a really like one-to-one correlation between Vivek writing a lot and going manic. So maybe he should stop writing. (laughs) But no, I rebelled and I kept writing anyways. Um, And actually, that's what the gay psychiatrist told me to do as well. He's like, no, 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 don't keep bottling things up. Definitely keep writing Um, because clearly this is a big release for you. So you don't want to like block things up again. Um, So writing actually became very healing and it became a way of reconstituting my memories and my reality um, and the kind of like dissociative experience of like the aftermath of an intense manic episode. Writing has actually made me like dissociate less and... Mm -hmm by, again, it's the internal, external kind of boundary. By externalizing my experience, um, I can recognize it and fear it less. Mm. So writing has been quite healing. Um, And because that was one of the only things I could really muster up the energy to write about after the fact, I ended up switching thesis topics actually to write about what had happened. Because actually my thinking about cancer care and clinical communication was really integral in my manic writings and in the way that I understood um, what I'd experienced. So that is what my thesis currently does. And what I hope it, in terms of ethnography, what I hope my thesis does is like, operates on a meta-theoretical level. For example, I mean, I was thinking a lot about actor network theory, both in like cancer care and in my ethnography of grinder projects. Um, so actor network theory kind of proposes um, like a picture of reality as a shifting network of relations and relationships. Um, so kind of this interconnectedness is really key. And with a sort of meta theoretical level, um, of my thesis, I'm not using this approach or this vision, but like actually piecing together my entire network, um, which drove me into mania. And then it's also like mania itself is a kind of elusive thing. Um, that's not really, we don't really have integrated models of like consciousness. Um, So mania and that actor network theory in in one sense is like a useful way of approaching something that is elusive to both nature and culture.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Another kind of meta aspect of actor network theory for me is that it collapsed, it collapses scale. Um, So like really it provides a vocabulary for like the connectedness of everything from like the granular to the grand, like the molecule to like the cosmos. Um, And like humans are also networks in this vision um, so, like, the thesis um, is my reality, and like, I am the project, quote unquote. Um, so, in that sense, that kind of captures part of the experience of mania for me, in which I like, there's almost a paranoic element of like, you know, and again, like, negotiation of the universal in particular of like thinking like this elevated experience of, you know, being a queer Messiah or projecting myself onto um some kind of universal commentary um and to think too hard about actor-network theory in terms of like humans have the same level of agency all actors are on the same level of agency basically from the way i understand it um so like
0: decentering the human you mean
1: yeah yeah and that can actually be a really dissociative experience <laughs> to kind of see yourself that way to think too hard about it um as a network
0: In your thesis what were some of the ideas that you had most fun with
1: so the really the common thread through this whole thing is uncertainty for me um so my original thesis topic was about uncertainty in cancer care which exists on so many levels there's like uncertainty in communication there's uncertainty like the limit of biomedical knowledge um There's uncertainty in, like, between the person and the role that they are, you know, operating in, whether that is patient or clinician or, like, queer person is a role. Um, So what I hope to do in my thesis is identify and explode all of those uncertainties. So uncertainty can also operate as, like, a touchpoint between different disciplines. Like, it has different resonances um, in, like, religious studies or, like, psychology or, like, communication At its most basic level even like in statistics uncertainties like confidence intervals um so that's something i really had fun playing with
0: can you give some concrete examples of these uncertainties
1: yeah um so for example my um interactions with healthcare after so um there's uncertainty in like in the mismatch between beliefs and expectations of the clinical encounter Like, I kind of came into the clinical encounter trying to show, like, no, 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 I'm good. Like, I'm healthy. I'm okay. I feel great. (laughs) I'm, like, not, I'm not, like, ashamed about what happened. Um, Whereas, you know, some clinicians that I interacted with had the expectation coming in of, like, okay, this person has a problem. I need to treat them and what they experience as a problem and sort of, like, label it so that I can treat it appropriately rather than letting themselves, like, bring themselves as they are. So there's an interpersonal uncertainty there. Um, And I think it really traces back to, like, the key uncertainty of consciousness, really. Um, Like, we don't really have integrated models of consciousness and conscious experience. You know, we only have access to our own kind of subjectivity, if we even have that. (laughs) Um, And that's so, like, really any kind of communication is a negotiation of uncertainty, of really something inaccessible to us.
0: Yeah. One last follow-up question about um, what queering academia and what queering maybe mental health and the medical industry would be for you.
1: I think queerness brings with it so much uncertainty. Um, But I think there's so much like rich possibility in that uncertainty as well. Um, I think queerness has almost this like Magical, disruptive quality as well, that I think is so needed um, in so many different spaces. Um, In academia, like we've talked about, like in your work as well, of like blurring boundaries. I think we think about like this postmodern tendency to like absolutize boundaries. So to either like put things into discrete categories or to try to eliminate categories altogether. And I think queerness provides like a vocabulary to like blur and negotiate categories. So, like, in academia, that could be, like, types of work, for example. Um, like, I don't really know how to categorize, like, even my ethnography of Grindr. Um, it's not, like, an academic project, but it's not entirely, like, creative because there's some analytical elements. Um, so, I mean, there's, you know, boundaries being blurred, and I think, I think queerness comes with the possibility to just sit in that blurriness, um, which is really exciting. Um, same thing in mental health. I think about... Again, like the policing around the boundary of like sanity and like what gets like pathologized and that is an ever shifting thing. I mean, and I think the way that healthcare still operates, it still kind of pathologizes queerness in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when I came back home in the aftermath of my manic episode, my dad said something along the lines of like, okay, like we spread this on a need to know basis um, which is, like, the vocabulary of, like, confidential projects um, that he, like, works on in his own work. Um, but that really made me question, is, like, I don't know if he was talking about my manic episode or, like, my queer identity. <laughs> um, Grant, I mean, he's been very supportive since, but, like, I think queer people are treated as, like, patients in the hospital of society. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, and the, the idea of coming out, it, like, parallels a lot of the, like, ritual of disclosing a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, like, I had the even though I'm the one kind of wrapped up in healthcare in the aftermath of my episode, I was really the one who had to play doctor and disclose a diagnosis to my parents of like, okay, I have, a good, I have bad news. Your son is gay. You, you know, <laughs> it's like diagnosis. Um, so I think like queerness has the possibility to throw a wrench into the system and and how we think about things in healthcare as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, that you know, you were placed with the burden also to have to disclose this quote-unquote diagnosis to your parents and yet at the same time I, I don't know if we I, I hope maybe one day but if we are in a society where we could avoid that um, because we still need to disclose that information otherwise there's another assumption going on, another narrative that's being placed onto us And that's a that's a really difficult tension to navigate, because like, what would it be to be queer, but never have to, quote, come out?
1: It's really it's a really fascinating question. Um, Yeah, I mean, so another thing I think about um, in my thesis is like ritual. Mm -hmm. And I think about in, in light of the postmodern tendency to absolutize boundaries. I think the boundary of like the closet is one of those boundaries and coming out of the closet is like a ritual, um, so I think about ritual in terms of the negotiation of uncertainty between actual and subjunctive or like as if worlds. Mm. Um, so I guess for my thesis, the as if world that it's negotiating with is one in which no one has to come out at all. And it's like, it's an ongoing, it's like a standing question. And actually Tony Adams, who's written a lot about autoethnography also writes about the closet as well. And like the paradoxes of the closet of like, there's really no good way to come out um And there's this, like, yeah, just so many dilemmas, really, that the queer person has to face in communicating their identity. And I think, yeah, and that boundary, if if my experience shows anything, is that that boundary is, like, really kind of imaginary. Like, it doesn't really exist. Like, I don't think, I mean, I was, on the one hand, I was as out as I could possibly be writing about you know gay sex on the Stanford Daily <laughs> and then at home, I was not out at all. So I mean, I think you know coming, I don't think we're ever really in the closet, nor are we ever fully done
0: coming out. Mm. Always in uh, the process of coming out. Mm-hmm. And I, I also feel like it's important as you've been talking about this external manifestation so this continual coming out whether it's you know vocalizing to your parents or through your writing and reconstituting your own memory and narratives that this is all part of that that continual process of queering which doesn't have an end point so what would and you can take this one of two ways either an older version of yourself looking back on you right now um what do you think they would say to you? Or Vivek, as you are now, looking back on yourself at any point in your journey, where maybe you had not found this comfort in negotiating uncertainty yet um, in your queer journey, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, what would I say to my past self?
0: Or or your future self say to you now, what do you think? It, it could oh, yeah. be either, yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. playing with time.
1: Um. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this question, especially as I approach graduation and reflecting on the last few years. Um, it gets better, <laughs> but first it has to get worse, you know? <laughs> I mean, I would probably say in my past self, like I think about ethnography as like a negotiation of ego mm. in some ways of like thinking, you know, you're so special that you have some kind of particular insight about your context um, is like really ego. Um, But by the same token, to think that you're so special that you're worse than everyone else, (laughs) and to have that insecurity and sense of deficiency is also ego. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd really tell my past self to like, you know, get over yourself, you're not that special, which is so comforting (laughs) and so beautiful. Um, You know, I think everyone is unique, but no one is special. And I think that's probably something that might've helped me to hear.
0: Any aspirations for um, future religious studies, undergraduates, or queer Asians, or queer male communities? Any aspirations you would like to voice and have them manifest? Maybe starting with stating them.
1: Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Thank you for the, um, for the opportunity. I mean, I, yes, I um, I mean, my long-term plan right now is uh, med school, eventually. Um, so, but I really, really, um, you know, am so compelled by my experience in religious studies and undergrad that I definitely want to keep this thread running. Um, and I mean, I'm still working out the particulars of what, you know, the next few years might look like. But the most immediate thing is my my thesis. I would like to pick it back up after graduation actually and like turn it into a manuscript um, weaving in the stories of other people who have shaped me over the years. Because um, I think like one of the limitations of an autoethnography of mania is like the sense of isolation it conveys. Um, and by no means have I been isolated. I've been surrounded by so many wonderful queer people including you um, who i have like, who really shaped me over the years um, so the goal of this larger work would be to um, kind of show through the lens of um, a manic coming out event that we are our networks that you know i've been defined by the people around me um, as well as giving a platform to other people who's um who's who you know who people would benefit from seeing their stories um there's just not there's really not enough out there um and then i also have pipe dreams with this project as well of like you know, maybe it gets picked up for a screenplay or maybe it gets picked up for a Netflix series, who knows? Um, So I definitely manifesting that now.
0: Um, Anything you would wanna say to future incoming students who are queer, but not yet out in certain aspects of their um, identity, maybe to certain circles, family or others?
1: I would say like in the theme of like queer time, (laughs) Um, I mean there's no you're not behind on anything. There is no early or late. Um, there just is um, and you're you're where you need to be and um, things are for a reason. So just have faith and stay true to yourself.